Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice. And we're sitting here with our feet up on the first rest day after the first week of the Tour de France 2020. But we're not resting on our laurels. This episode, we're going to bring you our first interview with a world tour rider, Leonard Kamner. Some of you may know him already, Germany. We know, we can see in the analytics, you're big fans of the pod, but not just the Germans should know Leonard Kamner. He won a massive stage in the Criterium de Dauphiné just before the Tour de France, the Bora Hansgrohe climber, a future GC contender possibly. But we'll get to that later. First, Benji and I are going to recap just who the stage winners were in the first nine stages and the current position on general classification. Just just do a quick recap of what's happened. But yeah, how are you, Benji? Are you enjoying not having to watch the tour today? Are you enjoying the rest? Or are you, you kind of missing the racing already? I'm also kind of missing the racing. I'm doing well though on the rest day. But I'm basically just at work because uh, I still have a full-time job. And while I do enjoy my job, I do enjoy watching cycling too. So yeah, I am missing the TDF a bit. But we've got Tireno as well today. So that's pretty cool too. Oh yeah, that reminds me. Thanks, Benji. We've got the Tireno Adriatico stage one. That will be a recap of that stage at the end of this podcast after the Leonard Kamner interview. We, I've got to be honest with you guys, and you know I don't like lying to you ever. Uh, we just didn't have time to do a Tirreno Adriatico preview show, so it's going to have to be just a recap of stage one. Um, I know you'll forgive us because the Tour de France has been on every day, but it's going to be a sprint stage anyway, so there's your, there's your preview already. Uh, and Froome and Thomas are riding. You might have heard of them. But getting into the stages of this year's tour stage one it was that rainy weird day in hindsight benji is that like how does that stage fit in your memory do you think of it as a weird stage and the winners and sort of top three guys weren't really the strongest riders i would say so but i also would say that it reminds me a bit of the world championships last year a very harsh race and the three riders that came out to be the first three were not necessarily the riders you would put in the top three in a sprint stage. And that's the same that you had at the World Championships last year. Metz Pedersen, Stefan Kuhn and Trenton were not really the guys I had moved up my list of favorites for the World Championships last year, but they were the strongest in that weather conditions. And these three riders were the strongest sprinters at the end of this pretty horrific day with all the crashes and the horrible rain on the uh, Côte de Rimier, I think it was called. Yes, sorry, stage one was won by Christoph, Norwegian, then a, a Dane second, Mads Pedersen, and Case Ball third. It, that was the first indication that maybe my Case Ball prediction wasn't too great. But those riders, apart from Case Ball, haven't really done too much in the rest of this year's, or the rest of Tour de France first week. Stage two was an absolute barnstormer, starting in Nice and finishing, finishing in Nice once again. That was the Julien Alaphilippe stage where he lit it up Milano Sanremo Poggio style on the last climb and uh, gapped everybody pretty much. Although the GC guys weren't really that interested in chasing. And the first stage podium for Mark Hirschi and Adam Yates coming third. And that kind of set up the later Adam Yates yellow jersey. 
that stage, Benji, we th- I thought that was a great stage, but it was immediately immediately eclipsed by the others. Do you think that was a success, Benji, having like a medium mountain stage in the second stage of the tour, like that close? It's almost never been done before. It was a success for me. I don't believe that I expected it to be explosive from the start, which it honestly wasn't. But the last 15 kilometers were intense and very nice to see. We had Alaphilippe just taking it just a second in front of Hershey, but... I also took away two other things. We had lost Sivakov already the day before, pretty much for GC. And the second day, we lost the Dauphiné winner, Daniel Felipe Martinez. So two riders that were expected to be in the top 10 of the GC of this Tour de France were basically already gone after two days. Yeah, and I forgot to mention in that stage one, all the crashes and how they maybe affected the first week of this year's Tour. Did it affect Bora Hansgrohe a fair bit? I don't really think so. Uh, yeah, maybe Mulberger and Kamner might not have been on top form, but neither was Bookman anyway coming in. So Alaphilippe goes into yellow, second stage. Everyone might be thinking, oh, wow, is he going to do it again? But I don't think I don't think for a second, Benji, Alaphilippe thought he really had a chance of carrying yellow through, through to Paris, whereas last year there would have been moments where he thought, actually, I can really do this. But stage three was a pure sprint stage again, starting in Nice, finishing in Cisteron. There are a few climbs and rolly hills in the middle of the stage, but we knew it was going to come down to an, a sprint. It was an uphill, sort of false flat drag in the finale. Caleb Ewan won that stage, cementing for me that Caleb Ewan is the fastest man in the world or the best sprinter in the world. We'll get to our rankings of uh, best sprinter, climber, and all-round rider, etc. in this year's tour later. Alaphilippe obviously holds on to yellow. Was that the first stage, Benji, where you thought Sagan is really not looking close to the other riders when, or the other sprinters when, say, Hofstetter was beating him and even you know Nizzolo was putting a fair margin into him, into him as well? I do believe that we already saw weakness that day. And additionally to that, I also felt like he launched too early. He launched early and pretty much played defensively in the sprint in the sense that he launched early in the hopes that he could still end pretty high up. And it wasn't necessarily the Sagan move that we saw in the past where he follows wheels and then comes out at the right moment, which Ewan did on this stage, basically. So, yeah, that was a sign of weakness for me. That was the Ewan stage where he zigzagged and pinballed his way to the finish and Bennett kind of came off his line a bit. Stage four, the Orsia Merlet stage, another uh, sort of mountaintop. Uh, uh, Jesus, struggling today. Stage four was the Orsia Merlet stage, the first mountaintop finish of the Tour de France this year, but not a genuine mountaintop finish. I'd say a hilltop finish is more accurate. Alaphilippe losing the. Oh, no, he's held it. Alaphilippe managing to retain the yellow jersey, but Primoz Roglic winning the stage. It was just another case of uphill, you know, sort of climbing drag and then a sprint to the line after 20 minutes or 15 minutes of effort. There's very few riders that can hold on to Primoz Roglic's wheel. And it didn't really change much about what I thought for this year's GC, to be honest. Pagacha came second. Guillaume Martin came third. It was more Naira Quintana coming fourth that was the big surprise for me in a sort of finale like that. It just showed that Quintana was already in pretty good shape and actually could be a real threat for the podium. Uh, Whereas Bernal wasn't looking that good 
either. Did that change anything? Did that stage change any of your preconceived notions about GC, Benji, before the tour started? Because to me, it was just like Dauphiné round two. Yeah, that's true. It did show a weakness in Carapaz and a slight bit in Buchmann and uh, basically confirmed that Martinez's GC was not looking too bright either from that point onwards. Those are the three things I really took out of that stage. The rest of the riders were as on point as I expected. Chavez was overperforming a bit. And yeah, in the coming stages after this one, he did show to not be up to standards with the other guys that he finished with on Ossierman led. But it certainly cemented Roglic in the position to take the yellow jersey if Yates loses it. So yeah, that's basically how that happened. Yeah, that was, you know, Roglic has just accumulated bonus seconds very efficiently throughout this first week, especially on this Ossier Mallet stage. One thing we haven't mentioned, and we've probably we've barely mentioned any Movistar riders in this year's tour, not our fault, by the way, they've largely been anonymous, is Alejandro Valverde losing 20 seconds in a finish like this. In 2018, Alejandro Valverde would probably be the odds-on favourite to get on the stage podium for a stage like this. And I think it's really showing that either lockdown meant he's didn't train like normal or he hasn't had the racing he usually has, you know, all those Spanish tune-up races he usually does in January, February, March or whatever to get ready for the proper world tour European season. He hasn't had them or maybe it's the fact that he's like 40 years old. But yeah, have you been surprised by Valverde being pretty much anonymous in this week one, Benji? Not necessarily because the Dauphiné was pretty terrible as well. I do want to note that despite Mars not looking too great in the first few days, he has been a bit better in the latter days, I recall but i'll have to check in gc in a second if he's still remotely up there after stage nine and such stage five was gap to priva the first wout van Aert stage that he won in this year's tour probably not the last well it definitely wasn't the last then but i think he might win more than two as well adam yates went into yellow on what i said was one of the most boring stages in tour de france history but definitely one of the most boring i've ever watched Yates and Alaphilippe finished in the same time in the bunch and then Alaphilippe got that penalty for holding on to or for getting a bid on within 20Ks to go. I did make a video about that saying, oh, you know, it's a little bit harsh and I don't think it was a conspiracy by Quickstep. But honestly, seeing everything that's happened since, seeing the way Alaphilippe, in my opinion, has deliberately lost, like when he did that faux attack and then lost 18 minutes on, I think, stage eight, I, I don't think it, Quickstep really cared at all. I mean, they were like, oh, it's a shame. You know, it could have been in yellow. But I think they knew they were going to be losing that jersey. And it really was going to be Alaphilippe going for stage wins as much as possible in this year's tour. Benji, do you think when Yates took that yellow jersey that Mitchton should have done what they've done and try and keep keep him in the jersey for, it was actually four days, and potentially miss out on a stage win in stage eight or nine? Or, yeah, did you think they do the right thing or not? Honestly, do it's a bit dishonorable if you have the yellow jersey and then decide to lose it on purpose. Like losing time on purpose to go into the breakaway is a valid thing, but doing so in the yellow jersey is a bit harsh, in my honest opinion. <laughs> okay, maybe that's me. Just that's that's not even thinking outside the box. That's just yeah, I agree. That's lunacy. I don't know why I even asked that. A better question then. Let's <laughs> take two. Have you been surprised? given Yates took that at the end of stage five and we had three, well, actually four consecutive pretty difficult stages after that. He did lose it after stage nine, but he held it for, four, for just about four days. 
were you surprised at how Mitchell and Scott were able to protect him and ride for him? Or did they even protect him and ride for him? Did Chavez and Nieve even help Adam Yates? Or is Adam Yates just really good at looking after himself in tricky scenarios? I believe that he had a team around him the moments they were there. Nonetheless, they weren't really there in the most decisive moments. But then again, I don't believe that Chavez and Nieve are up to standards for domesticating on the final ascension, for example, on mountain stages. In the past, they might have been, but not in this Tour de France, at least. Nieve was the strongest of the two, even on the last two stages, if I recall correctly, but I could be wrong there. Nonetheless, I, um, yeah, I feel like they did that well. They didn't really spend their team on it, and they shouldn't, because I believe that Mezgech is also here to try and get some results. And if Mezgech, for example, had to cipher himself away, basically for for Yates, then I'm not really sure if that's a good idea. They have the team to help him out in the uh, mid-range mountains and not necessarily the last climb then, but the earlier mountains and mountain stage, and they did that to the best of their capabilities, and they honestly protected the yellow jersey decently according to what they were able to. Do you have a different opinion? or I think they did a pretty good job, but I also think Adam Yates at Ineos is going to be a genuine GC contender if they send him to the right tour, right grand tour with the right profile. I think, yeah, he, he is getting dropped by Pogaccia and Roglic and Bernal up these sort of, they're going really hot pace in stages eight and nine, but at a tour that those riders aren't at with medium mountain stages where he might be able to take time, he's a pretty good descender. He'll have better teammates at Ineos. I think he'll be a genuine, not just a super domestic there. I think he could be actually, um, I mean, it's not that controversial opinion, a, a genuine GC contender. And also, Mitchelton Scott, even though they kind of fly under the radar when they come in, you look at their team and start of a lot of the Tour de France and you're like, Tours de France, and you're like, meh. Especially that this year before the Tour, I was like, eh, not that excited by that team. And they always seem to just, you know, they're either winning stages multiple stages or they're getting the yellow jersey for a few days and four days in the yellow jersey that has to be a success for Mitchelton Scott stage six was the next mountain stage up to Monteguel and it was pretty much a neutralization of GC with Ineos riding defensively on the front so nothing happened on GC at all really Yates was able to keep the yellow jersey Lutsenko won the stage. Do you think that's the last we've seen of Lutsenko in a breakaway winning a stage, Benji? He missed it yesterday. Like, why do you think he was... He, he just seems really hot and cold to me and inconsistent. Like, I expected what him to really be fighting to get in the break yesterday. Maybe he was, but yeah, I, I just feel like he's a hot and cold rider or do you see something different with him? I agree he's hot and cold indeed that he's inconsistent than when he is performing, but I also think that he potentially might have had to help Lopez more on this kind of stage, although that felt a bit weird. I didn't even see him in the Lopez train, really, when they were training up the Mont Blanc next to the Jumbo train, because I swear I saw a Philastana train at a certain point there that didn't do anything in the end. Nonetheless, in regards to Utsenko, there are going to be more stages that he goes in the break, I feel. I um, Yeah, yesterday was a pretty good day for that, but then again, like the way the breakaway formed yesterday was super extraordinary, Attacking for basically, I think, 57-ish kilometers straight until we had one guy that eventually got away. I think you need to be lucky to get away there and very strong. And she certainly was that on yesterday's stage. But maybe Lutsenko just missed it. We don't know. 
Stage seven from Milau to Laval. Well, one, the second stage won by Wout van Aert. Adam Yates again retaining the yellow jersey. This was the crosswind stage with Bora Hansgrohe lighting it up and just another stage that goes to show, well, it's just hopefully a preview or a foreshadowing of something even more disastrous that might happen tomorrow in stage 10, which is supposed to be, hopefully, I haven't checked the wind forecast, Benji. Uh, I assume people on Twitter will tell me the day before or the morning of whether there's going to be good crosswinds tomorrow or winds. Um, but yeah, hopefully, it seems that everyone knows, like, we're not geniuses. All the DS should know that there's going to be crosswinds. But every time a GC contender will get on the wrong side of a split, maybe just because there's not enough space on the road. And I want to ask you this question, Benji. It's a good rest day recap question. If Pogacar does not lose that 90 seconds or a minute on that stage, do you think we would have seen the exact same racing the last two days? Do you think Pogacar would have been just as aggressive? Yeah, I believe that he would have been just as aggressive. He's that type of rider. We've seen it in Duvalta last year. Additionally, he only lost that time in that split because he uh, had a puncture five kilometers before the split happened. And I think he just got up the moment that the peloton started splitting. So maybe he just got unlucky that day. And at the end of the day, he basically said to an interviewer who asked him the question, well, uh, are your chances gone for GC? Because you lost a minute today. And he basically said, it's only a minute. We'll try and get it back. (laughs) So that was awesome. And he uh, sure as hell did not disappoint the days after. I, um, I believe that Roglic might have maybe responded a bit quicker on stage 8 if he was closer in GC, but the way Pogacar rode up the Peresur is not exactly a thing you can repeat too much if you are another favorite there, because that was a a nuclear climbing record, in the words of my friend here. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, the thing is, Pogacar actually did repeat that power on the next on stage nine, I was seeing he actually did the same sort of ten minute power, just nearly on stage nine. And stage nine was a harder stage. The normalized power for the entire stage was higher than stage eight, which was you know stage eight was cruisy and then just smash fest up called the Pedersud. But just bear in mind, stage seven, Pagacha doesn't lose that time. He would currently be wearing the yellow jersey now. Maybe he wouldn't have got that little bit of leash from Roglic on stage eight. Whether Roglic could have followed him, we'll never know. But what one thing is for certain, Roglic will be trying to follow Pogaccio when he goes up the road if he ever attacks again in this year's tour because he's too close on GC and we've seen what he can do and we saw that on stage nine. But stage eight was the second time that a breakaway actually won the stage. Nuns Peters, who I believe you, Benji, called for a stage win on a Tour de France preview uh, and Adam Yates still retained the yellow jersey for a fourth day. What did you think about Pogacar's Petersud climbing record in hindsight, Benji? i got a few thoughts on it, actually. I um, do want to repeat again that I believe Jumbo made a mistake that day, and it isolated Roglic on the Petersud, and maybe if they didn't do so on the Portobeles, breaking their own team, they might have been there to support him better. I'm not sure what you are referring to, but I'm... Very eager to hear it. I don't think the Tade Pagacha Petersur record is as out of this world stratospheric as we initially thought it was. I think the Vinokurov record was deep into a Tour de France and, you know, maybe second or third week. 
the stage was incredibly easy, stage eight, or before the Porte de Ballet's climb, I think. But it was, they'd gone really easy for a lot of it and then tried to smash, you know, over the first half of it and then smash the second two climbs. When you look at what a rider like Pogacar can do in training, 6.5, 6.6 6 watts per kilo for 20, 25 minutes, he's, done, he's probably done that in training before. And what's surprising is, yeah, he had a hard day the day before, but they've had a lot of easy days, the GC men, the days before as well. Like Monteguel was easy, easier than they expected. Gap to Pliva, easy, like one of the easiest stages ever. Nico Roche was joking that they got put on half rations because they couldn't eat too much food because they didn't burn enough calories that day. So I don't think the Pagacha Petasud record is like, just completely mind-boggling. And I actually don't think we need to be – a lot of people were like, should we not be concerned about this because they're beating Ivan Mayo and Vinokurov? And I was like, not really, to be honest. Like Vinokurov did that all on his own. Pogaccio had a bit of a lead-out as well from Jumbo Visma for a lot of it. So obviously unbelievable performance, right? Like still um, really impressive, etc. I'm just saying – I'm just trying to quell some of the cynicism that's uh, coming through. About no, no, that I agree. performance. Yeah. Do you feel the same way or do you think I'm like belittling his performance? I totally agree. And I'm going to compare it to something totally different. A lot of people have the same responses to them in the pool. You either have the people that, well, this is very controversial. So I'll just go over it and say my opinion. So you've got a lot of people that are extreme fanatics of Remco Evenepoel that hype him up every time he does anything. And then you've got the opposite people that don't like him and they basically pull the doping card every time. And I believe that every attack that we've seen so far is relatively explainable. I'm going to take the Polonia solo from Evenepoel as an example. He rode away on a stage where basically at that moment he was in the front group with Ballerini and he rode away. And at that moment, the first three-ish minutes of him riding away from that group we saw in the second group that there was no cooperation at all. There was one guy pacing. I think it was Dunbar, actually. And the moment that he started pacing all out, they took time back on Evenepoel on a little hill. But the moment he was off the front, you had Ballerini riding first, a teammate of Evenepoel, slowing down the pace like crazy. And he rode there for like a minute straight, just at the front, upping the gap to like 50 seconds. And that makes it less unbelievable than people proclaim it to be. He's... A cyclist like any other, but he's extremely awesome. And I, as a Belgian, I'm obviously a fan of him, but I'm also not going to be the fanatic that makes everything sound like he's 20 times better than everyone. He's an amazing cyclist. But on the other end, people don't need to pull the doping card every time somebody beats a record, in my honest opinion. And I'm always somewhat an avid fan of innocent still proven guilty because a lot of people every time somebody does something great they start already bashing it and looking for a negative thing around it and i want to enjoy it as much as possible in the moment itself i mean we haven't really addressed this on the podcast yet uh and i've really never explained my sort of overall perspective on on doping etc but on a, on a general broader level i'm very cynical just about sport i'm just very cynical but I'm not going to, and I've had this happen to me before where it stopped me enjoying cycling where I couldn't enjoy performances because I was just getting too cynical about every performance. So I'm like you now. I don't, 
criticize an individual uh, unless it's like a Raul Alarcon uh, Volta Portugal. That's yeah. like different OJ <laughs> stuff. But, <Indeed. laughs> but, you know, I'm just going to enjoy an individual's performances and still have broad concerns generally about anti-doping in sport, not just cycling. And uh, you gave that Renko Evenepoel point. I'll give you another one. The Froome Landis stage. If you go through and watch that, and remember, we all just watched stage nine. Who was the worst descender on stage nine? Sebastian Reichenbach. And who was the man who was sandbagging and, you know, anchoring that chase of Froome in the Giro d'Italia? Sebastian Reichenbach. When you actually look at what happened, and if you're calculating time gaps and when those time gaps occurred, um, like when the Hirschig time gaps occurred, but then when you go to the Froome stage and say, okay, was he dominating them on the climbs or was it every time Reichenbach was on the front, he was slowing them down by like a minute on every descent. And we looked yesterday Every corner, the first corner of every descent, Reichenbach got popped off the off the back. So, as you said with the Evenepoel example, there's often other explanations for why sort of these crazy performance performances can happen. But anyway, stage nine was to from Pau to Laurent. We just had that yesterday. Won by Tadej Pogacar, the leader after the stage, taking the yellow jersey, the jersey he didn't want, the jersey that's gonna it's just weighing so heavy on their shoulders. You know, Jumbo Visma saying they didn't want the yellow this early. Roglic going into yellow, a stage winner from a Slovenia and a, the yellow jersey going to the other uh, two Slovenians, one taking the stage win, one taking the yellow jersey, one, two on the line, beating Mark Hershey. What do you think is the ceiling for Mark Hershey, Benji? And like, what's a comparable sort of rider for him that's his ceiling in terms of his potential? It's hard to really name one necessarily, but... I do want to say that last year we already saw a wonderful performance in him getting third on the San Sebastian that Remco won. So he's definitely not a rookie there. And this year I feel like he grew a bit more towards being more climby in proper mountains instead of just the punch. Because last year he did also pretty well at the Bing Bang Tour. And I think he got pretty close there even in GC as well for a second there. But I'm not sure about that. And I think he got second or so in Hufalize. Not sure about that, but I um I saw him more as a puncher last year, and he's growing more into a rider that can do both the punching and both the climbing on proper climbs. You saw that at the Dauphiné as well. And additionally to that, who can I compare that to? I kind of feel like he's slowly but surely growing towards Joaquim Rodriguez from the past, in the sense that he's got the climbing. He's not at that level, of course, but... He's got the climbing and he's got a serious punch to it when it comes to uh, if it comes down to like a uh, finish on top of a climb, for example. But yeah, we will see him grow quite a bit more in the future, I think. Yeah, I'm excited to see what he turns into. He's so young and yeah, it was a shame what happened yesterday, but I'm sure he's going to get plenty of big, big World Tour victories in the future. So the status of GC... On the rest day, Primoz Roglic first, Egan Bernal second, 21 seconds behind Roglic, Guillaume Martin third, Vokovidis 28 seconds behind, Roman Bardet fourth, 30 seconds behind, Quintana fifth, 32 seconds behind, Rigoberto Uran at the same time. Tane Pogacar still 44 seconds behind Primoz Roglic. Adam Yates bumped down to uh, eighth on GC and Miguel Angel Lopez ninth as well and Mikel Lander rounding out the top 10 and Richie Port 11th and Port 
had a pretty good stage yesterday and he finished stage nine safely. So a few things have happened in GC. Tom Dumoulin is clearly not going to be a GC contender for Jumbo Visma in this year's tour. Egan Bernal losing time to Roglic uh, in week one, 21 seconds. Nothing to turn your nose up at, given that every second might count coming into that Planche de Belfia time trial. I think 44 seconds for Pogaccia relative to Bernal, Martin, Bade and Quintana and Uran is nothing because he, on the Planche de Belfia time trial, I expect him to make up significantly more than that on them, but not on Primoz Roglic. But let's get into who we think after the first week is the best sprinter, the best climber, the best all-rounder, and the strongest team in this year's tour. Benji, who do you think is the best sprinter? I'm not going to say all-round sprinter or whatever, just who do you think is the best sprinter in this year's tour? I believe the best sprinter in regards to making his way through the peloton in a sprint and the actual speed he can meet and the watts he can pull is in my opinion Caleb Ewan, but I do want to add to that that he doesn't seem to get into the right positions at some points, and that's a bit of a weakness there then, I guess. He uh, obviously lost a significant portion of his train, but still, I uh, expected a tiny bit more maybe regarding positioning, and obviously I think he fell as well on the first stage, so we can get him some slack maybe, and hopefully we can see him towards the end of the third week maybe. But Wout van Aert, of course, we gotta name him. He is not necessarily the strongest sprinter in this Grand Tour, in my honest opinion, compared to a Ewan, but he is there on the hardest stages where a Ewan is not. And he's also better at positioning pre-sprint, I feel like, because he's always near the wheel of ball, and that's a pretty good idea if the ball train is so crazy like it was in the first week. My pick, and maybe I'll get booted out of Australia for this, my pick is Wout van Aert. Because sprinting is not just about top speed. That's why I said just best sprinter. I didn't say fastest man or whatever. Best sprinter, positioning is part of it. Wild Van Aert doesn't have a train either. He got he ain't got nothing. And he still won two stages. Yeah, I think he's the best sprinter because maybe he doesn't have that top, top end speed on a flat sprint. And you know, we'll see it on Champs-Élysées, how he can go. But positioning, timing, that's all important. So my pick is Wild Van Aert. The best climber in the in the week first week and the best climber in this year's tour, I think, is Tade Pogaccia. But we haven't hit Colombia and Col de la Loz yet, but I think it's still Tade Pogaccia. I, I'm not sure Bernal and Quintana will be able to drop him, you know, on those big climbs and certainly on the below altitude, not so long, you know, the, the 40 minute or 25 minute climbs rather than like the hour long climbs. I think he's the best climber given how aggressive he's had to be and then still winning a stage after attacking three times yesterday, by the way, and then contesting the uh, sprint at the top of the Mary Blanc and beating Bernal easily there. Um, so I think Pogac is the best climber in this year's tour. Who do you think? I totally agree. And necessarily, I do want to add to that that I do believe that Bernal is really growing quite well into the race. And we had it last year as well. In last year's Tour de France, we started in week one, where he basically lost time on Plage de Belfia. And he also lost time the week after on Pradalbi stage, where Pinot got time. And the day before that, he lost eight seconds or so on the Tourmalet. So I've believed that Bernal is currently better than he was at this point in the race last year. If he slowly but surely keeps growing a tiny bit with that form... I, I know you don't like the word peaking, <laughs> but it feels like he's somewhat 
moving up his form to the third week. I'm trying to avoid the word here. Come on. But I do believe that he's a factor to deal with on Colaloz and Colombier, but not necessarily in danger for Pogacar, really. I really think that Pogacar will keep up this form he's shown in the Vuelta last year that he grows in the race and even becomes better and better into the third week. So let's hope that's the case here as well, because then we're going to see awesome stuff in the third week. But let's hope he's not too great either, that it doesn't become boring. Now, I don't believe that Bernal's growing in the race a tiny bit, and that he's leading up towards being really strong Colombier and Colalos, because those are the climbs where I expected him pre-TDF, and it's more and more looking like we indeed are going to see him there. Nonetheless, Roglic, he hasn't shown severe weakness yet. He's always there where when he needs to be there, and... Therefore, I can't really say whether he's going to be able to follow a Pogacar and a Bernal on Colalos and Colombier. I just can't judge it, really, because we haven't really seen him show any weakness, but we haven't really seen him show any strength either. So I'm kind of double-sided on him. I don't know. I think I think he has shown strength when we look at the way he was leading out for almost a kilometer on the stage, into the stage yesterday, and was actually coming back to Pogacar in the sprint and you know, didn't have much of a draft. I, I actually think he was more focused on just getting that yellow jersey, keeping time on the group behind him, and stage stage win was secondary. I, I still think he's looked pretty strong, actually, when he's needed to. But And also, winning GC is not just about who can go up the climbs the quickest. We saw that with Pogaccio losing time. You know, Would it surprise you if Pogaccio lost time tomorrow in the crosswinds? It wouldn't surprise me, and I think... Jumbo Visma, I did have question marks about the way they can protect Roglic in crosswinds because I don't think Roglic is perfect in them either. But he's got the uh, the Belgian shepherd, Wad van Aert, to look after him. So we saw that on on stage uh, stage seven. He like I even saw a side like slow mo pics or I, I in the ITV video I made a, a section of the video where I, I saw Wad van Aert literally pointing to where Roglic needed to go when Kwiatkowski was drilling it. He was like pointing where to move up, etc. So, yeah, I think Roglic should be okay in like crosswinds or mixed terrain because he's just got that, you know, hair sink, Wafanad, etc. Whereas, yeah, Pogaccio doesn't really have that uh, that team support when it really matters in decisive moments. I don't think even Formolo yesterday, like I thought he might have been able to stay in front of them and then be a launch pad for Pogaccio. But anyway, who do you think Benji is the strongest team in this year's tour, I won't prattle on it. I think it's Jumbo Visma. Yeah, I don't think we disagree on that. And I don't think anyone really disagrees on that. We yeah. do certainly have sometimes our doubts whether the team is used in the most efficient way. We've explained that in the previous podcast a bit that we believe that they sometimes go a bit too early and it's costing Roglic a tiny bit. But then again, it hasn't really cost him too much because he's in the yellow jersey. So we can complain as long as we want about the tactics that Jumbo is using. But if he's in the yellow jersey and stays there, then they're doing a good job, I guess. Additionally, I do want to add regarding the team of UAE that um, we didn't talk about Aru yet. What's your opinion on oh, yeah. Aru being out of the race and the way his team manager responded to that, which in Mana's opinion was not very professional of the team manager. Yeah, so what's his name? Soroni is the team manager. I think it was Soroni Senior came out on... I don't know where he said it, but I saw his what he said quoted on Twitter, which is how I receive most of my information, second or third hand, so it's usually wrong. But he was saying, 
you know, Aru, he basically said, Aru is a disgrace. Aru is psychologically weak. Why do we even bring this guy to the tour? Aru has cost Tade Pagacha by being selected and even being here. And you know what? I do not blame Fabio Aru for a second. I blame the leadership and the decision makers at UAE Emirates. I said, I think in the Vuelta Espana, like I said at the end of 2019, and then I said when they selected their Tour de France team, I was like, you guys, actually, no, they don't. I was about to say, you guys should have Tadej Pogacar's power data, but his power needed barely worked for the entirety of 2020 so far. But anyway, you guys should know that Tadej Pogacar is like going to be probably top three GC rider in the world for the next five to seven years at least. Fabio Aru is not very good anymore and hasn't really done too much since 2015. I know he had the heart issue and I'm not, you know, he's coming back from the heart stuff. That's not his fault, but the reality of it was they were saying, oh, it's sort of joint leadership, yada, yada, yada. I was like, it's obvious to everyone that's watching that you should be all in on Pagacha. And yeah, I think they kind of took Aru actually expecting him to be good. And that's why they're so disappointed. But yeah, I agree, Benji, pretty unprofessional comments. Do you, like, do you have any criticisms for Aru? Like, what did you see that actually meant he was, what did he say, that he, any adversity, he turns into marsh or something? I genuinely can't really judge on it. I don't know the severity of his injuries of the past. I don't know how that was handled by the team surrounding him, how he was supported during those events. It's really hard to judge this from outside. And I feel like the the fact that he doesn't have any team support on that, it is horrible. And the fact that his own team is saying that about him, like seconds after he gets out of the Tour de France in such a horrendous way is it's just mind-boggling. I, I, I don't get it. Saroni, what a douchebag, genuinely. Yeah, the only counter to that would be if like Aru was actually saying and expecting people to carry bidons for him and yeah, that's like, true. having domestiques come back for him in like previous stages, which we, you know, that might have happened. Like we saw at Astana, you know, he seemed to expect Lander and Co to ride for him. And uh, that was also the team deciding to do that as well. So yeah, it's hard to say without knowing it, but I think we both can both agree that he didn't need to be saying that stuff to the press because it's been a good tour so far. Well, well, Pogaccio looks good. I'm not sure it's been a good tour so far for the UAE management and DS, but they're still in a pretty good spot and they've got what who we think is the best climber in the race. So I think just, yeah, keep the tweets or the quotes to a minimum, Cerrone, and focus on telling Tade when crosswind sections are about to happen and looking after him because otherwise oh, he signed till 20, 2020 forever. But I had people saying, imagine if he went to Astana and had, you know, the support of Lasso or Fulsang or whoever, just be, or the Izaguirre brothers. It would be a whole different animal. But onto some hashtag LRCP questions on Twitter. We asked for your rest day questions. One from Constantin. Question for the Rest Day podcast. Riders like Buchmann and Pino, who aimed for the GC podium, are clearly out or clearly not contesting GC. Why continue riding the Tour de France? Wouldn't it be better to step out, properly recover from their crashes or injuries, and then focus on the Giro Vuelta? You can have a first crack at this, Benji. It's hard to say because Buchmann didn't look horrible up till yesterday in the sense that he hadn't lost like multiple minutes yet. And yesterday it was where he really just fell through and lost the rest of his time. And I believe that maybe today is a turning point that either he has to go for stage wins or 
he decides to step out. But I do believe that it's very dependent on his injury. I'm not sure how far that is the cause of this. Most likely, I would expect that it is the cause of his current behavior in the race. But I don't know. It's hard to judge, really. I would not necessarily... I'm not really a fan of stepping out of the race instantly because that basically removes any perseverance. But on the other end, if you're injured, you shouldn't be racing. So it's double-sided and I don't know. So I'll give it to you. So I think there's different levels to this. I think someone like Wout Poles shouldn't be riding. It's just, it's like not even safe, really. Like he's properly injured and there's literally nothing to gain. He should be at home, you know, in bed, just about like he shouldn't be. But Bookman... Bookman is pain-free, so I don't see the harm in him trying. And until yesterday, I hadn't lost too much time. And, like, Bookman is still riding it over six watts per kilo for 20 minutes. So, like, that's not injured. And, you know, maybe he – Jesus Christ, I'm going to say it. Maybe he peaks in the third week and <laughs> gets, better with the, gets better with the racing and – yeah, maybe like Guillaume Martin and co. And he just gradually moves up and he gets like fifth on GC. Fifth on GC, yeah, it's not it's not what they were aiming for. It's not what the German... Because like I've had a lot of people and I've even been criticised even though I'd say I'm a... For an English-speaking MI media, but English-speaking cycling person, I think I'm pretty... I cover Bora and the German writers a lot and people are like, why aren't you talking about Buchmann enough? And because in Germany... Apparently, people like he's not. He could really win the tour. He there's a strong likelihood he could win the tour. But going into the tour, no one really thought that, given his crashes, etc. So I think Bookman's looked good this first week. Honestly, he's certainly not embarrassed himself. With Thibaut Pino, it's what Benji said on the other pod. It's you don't want to abandon when you're an FDJ and you abandoned badly last year. Maybe Pino just wants to actually finish the you know the Tour de France because he's physically capable of doing so, but. I think Pino, for me, he should abandon because Giro Vuelta, maybe even if uh, Worlds might not be hard enough, but Giro Vuelta's beckoning. I think he should go to one of those races and redeem himself, either as a GC rider or going for stages because I actually don't think he's capable of even winning a stage in, in this current form. Like Hershey just rode away from him yesterday easily. So that's why. Whereas Bookman, he's capable of being competitive and you know top 10 GC in the Tour de France, isn't isn't something to be ashamed of. Pino, I don't think so. Cut your losses. I agree with you, Constantine, go this year. But it is, it's a case-by-case basis. The next question from Wild Variest, long-time supporter, hashtag LRCP. Will Roglic regret not putting time on Bernal both on stage eight and six, and even maybe in stage nine? I feel like Bernal is peaking for Colombia and Maribel. Is it possible Roglic has too much self-confidence? Well, yeah, he's obviously targeting Colombier and Maribel and maybe even, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely targeting them in Col de la Lourdes. But, yeah, I actually do think Roglic made a mistake on one of those stages, not trying to put time into Bernal and really working with Pogaccia properly. Will it matter in the end? I'm not sure. Maybe him saving the legs, Roglic, means he'll have more pep at the end of the uh, Tour de France to really dominate that time trial. So it's really hard to say with... With all these things peaking and whatever, if you're not looking at their power data and their heart rate and their recovery and all that, and look at their proper physiological data, it's you're really just guessing, um, and you don't know. Uh, you can look at their performances and say, well, he was actually flying in that stage because of his VAM and what's peculiar that you can calculate on a napkin, but 
yeah, I don't know. I can't really answer with any confidence. I think tactically it would have been a good idea to try and put some more time into Bernal if it didn't require an, you know too much extra energy rather than just waiting. But I don't think it's the end of the world either. What do you think, Benji? Yeah, I've got the same opinion. I do believe that indeed that he made a small mistake necessarily to not use these stages more that fitted him better. But then again, maybe he's saving the energy to the stages where he expects to be under pressure more to try and make sure that he stays up there and doesn't lose any time on the Colombia and Cola Laws and maybe even gains them accordingly. But I don't know. I, I still believe, as I said before, that Bernal's really targeting those two stages. It's probably going to fit him better than a Roglic does, but that's all speculation, of course. And yeah, it's a very speculative question that is pretty hard to answer. But yeah, I would say he might come to regret it, but he might not. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, the quick answer is we don't know. But that was the first part of our week one Tour de France wrap-up. We hope you've been enjoying the podcast. The ratings on the Apple Podcast Store are just incredible. We're blown away by all the support. And we're going to keep these rolling. We've been really enjoying doing them. Yeah, I'm pretty tired, but hey, got to rest out today in another two weeks. And um, yeah, I'm looking at my TSS profiles and I'm probably ready to peak on the Colombier stage. But now Benji has to go and do some work and we're going to bring in Leonard Kamner, the climber, the Criterium de Dauphiné stage winner from Bora Hansgrohe, the young German, a good guy all around. Here's our rest day interview with Leonard to check in with him. Welcome, Leonard Kamner, future Vuelta a España, GC podium maybe even winning the Vuelta Espana pretty soon, future Tour de France stage winner. So what's happened today? Anything different in like a COVID Tour de France on the rest day for you? Yeah, we need to do the COVID test. That's uh, actually one of the biggest difference. And also that we don't have any media in the hotel. Like uh, we only do it per yeah, call and maybe via Skype or now via Zoom. So uh, that's the biggest difference. You have actually a quite relaxed rest day, to be honest. Because absolutely no stress. That's what I'm, I'm wondering is after the Tour de France finishes, maybe riders will say, I wish the Tour de France was always like this, like a little bit less crazy, like less fans. There's still fans, but is it is it nicer not having so many fans and just like so many prep media people all the time? Like you've done mm-hmm. tours before. Like is it is it better that way? Nah, for example, after the stage, you normally do like one interview in the mix zone and everybody has this microphone there and then you're done. And now okay. you have to tell uh, like three times in a row the same thing and it's actually pretty <laughs> annoying. And uh, also with the, with the fans, <laughs> you have it there. Normally it's like pretty crowded and um, yeah, you can feel for three weeks a little bit like a rock star and uh, now it's everything a little bit more quiet, only on a few yeah big mountains with a lot of... Uh, historic background you have a lot of spectators and the rest is uh, super calm so uh, actually there is something missing on the tour for sure so i wish uh, we have a normal one again okay yeah fair enough hopefully next year it'll all be fine i mean i'm glad that you guys are still able to ride the tour um and yeah thanks for calling in at midnight australia time early day for me today so how has the first week been it's like a you did the vuelta i think in 2017 a lot of people said like a thousand times, it looks like a Vuelta first week sort of profile. What was it like having a mountain stage on stage two? And yeah, has it been a different week because of the profiles or has it still felt like a Tour de France profile? 
I only did like one tour before last year and there we had like uh, everything in Brussels the first three stages that was like yeah it was hectic and uh, uh, more narrow road so it also was super stressful now we had like this crazy first stage which was like completely crap and then uh, yeah we went to the second one which was uh, immediately yeah relatively hard from the profile but we didn't rent so hard the first two climbs and started real racing like the last two climbs so it was actually uh, okay when I remember 2017 in the Vuelta, I was suffering big time, especially in the first week. I was actually only in the wheels. And I was thinking like, wow, how can I survive this uh, Grand Tour? And uh, this time it was, I had a better shape and uh, it felt uh, much easier than the Vuelta, actually. Yeah, so I felt like, I mean, I got no idea exactly what, how hard the stages are. Like when you're looking on TV, you can't really tell how hard it is. but on that uh, stage six, like Monte Gual, the the first sort of mountaintop finish, when Ineos went to the front, yeah, I was pretty sure I was like, that's not actually that hard a pace for guys like you and the GC guys. It seemed pre- pretty easy, and then the stage that Pogaccia set the Perisul climbing record, it seemed like the first half again, like the breakaway went Michelin Scott not chasing, and then like yeah. easy again, and then it seemed like everyone just smashed it up Pedersud. Was the was stage six being maybe a little bit easier than people expected? Did that feed into you guys going absolutely crazy on stage seven when you did? I think I'm pretty sure I looked, I saw your power data. You did 8,000 watts for like at least two minutes. Um, is that, was stage six being easier? Did that contribute to stage seven? what you did or were you going to do that anyway was that always the plan to get peter mm-hmm. in the break or split it yeah actually stage seven was uh it was and a little bit different we have like a hard race in the beginning and made this jumping but uh, after one and a half k jumping was already over and nobody wanted to go in the group so yeah we we changed plan and uh, max schachmann was absolutely drilling it uh, up to that climb and in the end felix and I was in the back with uh, Emu. We were like on place uh, 50, 40, and it was it was like a proper all out to just uh, stay on the wheel. And I was like, stop it, stop it. And from kilometer 18 on, I was like also in the in the echelon uh, and uh, pulling. And I was like, okay, if we go a little bit faster, I get dropped, and I don't know if I ever see the finish line again. So I was like, this is this is proper hard now. But in the end, it was okay. Like uh, after the first 50, 60 K, we, we had like a big enough uh, gap and then we could ride like with yeah, 300 watts. And can you confirm that it was the climb at the start, that category three climb that split it? Or was it the crosswinds yeah. after? But it, I, I thought it was actually the climb that split it and then like the little crosswind section afterwards just, I guess, made it easier for you to keep mm. that gap. Uh, or was there crosswinds like straight from neutral flag? Yeah, it was uh, on the climb. It was even on the climb, but it was crosswind because it was a really open climb. So uh, yeah, everybody was hanging in the line and was even going uphill. So it was like absolutely bad to be in the back. You had absolutely no advantage of slipstream or something. So it was also mentally hard. You see some guys pulling in the front and you are hanging in the line. Hard rate, I don't know, almost on the peak. And uh, then actually we had like where we expected we had headwind and uh, that was 
relatively bad for us because normally we could have the, made it even harder on the, there was one turning point where we went like down and we had a hairpin to the left. And that was also where like everything went really hard, but we needed to pull, like pull, pull. And if we have a little bit of tailwind there, everything would have exploded, I think, even more. And that kind of goes into my next question. One of the people asked, because I said, oh, I'm interviewing Leonard, send through your questions. And one of their questions was, how do you deal with as like you're there? I think you primarily as a domestique, but maybe stage wins now, but we'll get to that later. How do you deal with sort of two priorities as a domestique rider where one day you are pulling in sort of the echelon for Peter Sagan and the next day you are riding like as domestique for Emu. Yeah, maybe on that day it was uh, difficult on these two days. Uh, normally, to be honest, we don't do so much for the green jersey as uh, because we have almost like a, a climber squad. We are here mainly because of a good GC or we were here because of a good GC. And um, you can also see it like it was Schachmann, it was Großschartner, Mühlberger and me. We are not uh, really specialists for crosswinds and uh, leader of train. It's not uh, what we are here for. So it was in that moment a little bit weird, but it actually worked out pretty well because also with us, you have somebody who can give like a good, um, how you say it, command. You can set a good pace and uh, they also say like, okay, now you can recover a little bit. Uh, I take some turns and that was pretty good. But I think if you do it for more than two days, like if it would be the next day again that we have to do Fulga's uh, sprint lead out or chasing, then uh, it would have been a big problem, I think. Now it was okay. Yeah, and like I got, I took a photo, I tried to take two photos and I think you were on the front of, of the first echelon and Tim DeClerc and Remy Cavagna were chasing and you were gaining time on them. And I was like, Leonard needs to take this photo and put it on his wall because like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the quick step yeah. classics train chasing, and you're gaining time on them because they must have been like completely blown apart from that climb. Yeah, I guess so. Normally, Cavagna and Tim de Clerc are insane when they pull in front. You are normally suffering in the back. So mm. uh, yeah, we had a good uh, good spirit. We went smooth, and I think that was maybe our biggest advantage that we were relatively constant in our turnings, and everybody could recover a bit. And it's also a difference if you go with four guys doing turnings or if you are with two guys in the back trying to yeah, bridge across and then you are more like going fully deep for like two or three minutes trying to get that gap down. And when you then uh, don't make it, then you have like lactate, I don't know, 10, 11, and then you are missing more and more time because you cannot uh, do a proper yeah, chasing anymore. And I mentioned it sort of when I was asking one of the questions, I said you did 8,000 watts for two minutes. That's probably not known that well outside of Germany. Could you explain the 8,000 watts meme to people? Out, or is it not possible to explain it? I think it's hard to explain. It's like uh, just a, a guy who started like two years ago with uh, random videos where he was saying uh, 8,000 watts. He was asking like some shipper man, like how much does this engine have like for power? And then uh, he's saying something and he just asked with uh, answers with like yeah, 8,000 watts. So it's something completely weird, but it's somehow funny. We also say that only big chain ring. And um, ah, 
it's hard to hard to explain. I just like the guy, and uh, I think it's funny if you see eight thousand watts and uh, only big chain ring. It's just stupid talk. <laughs> yeah, and like that's why I like half the things I like about cycling are just random memes and just random funny things I see or photos like the cycling out of context Twitter account where he just takes random stupid like photos of people doing stupid things in the race is like half the reason why I watch cycling to be honest but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned in one of your when you were responding just then that you were there for GC uh you don't have to answer if like Bora doesn't have an official position on it yet but are you going to get full license to go stage hunting now i saw that from you yesterday when you were trying to get in the break is yeah will you be riding still for emu or focusing on stage wins for yourself uh no yesterday it was still uh for for emu i wanted to be in the break to actually be able to help uh, on the last climb to still oh, okay. be in front to maybe get back but it was also like if there's no problem then i can also go for a stage victory or can try it but uh, this time it would have been super useful to have me in the front and uh, yeah, try to chase the gap down a little bit more for Emu. But in the end, it absolutely didn't work out. And we got actually caught even before the last climb, which was the worst thing that could actually happen to me. But uh, yeah, we cannot change it anymore. And I think uh, we are all in for stage victories now, or we try to, because... To be honest, with four minutes in the GC, you won't uh, do a proper top five or top ten result anymore. It's actually it's gone. Either you are going into a group and maybe sneak some minutes back, but normally you don't. There's ten guys in top ten who are actually pretty close on time gaps. Like yeah. Yates, Yates is like twelfth or thirteenth with only one minute, uh, whereas you know Uran etc. They're all climbing. Like yeah, Pogacar set that record on Perusud on stage eight but also the other riders were not that far behind him either so it seems like the level is pretty good i, I just wanted to say on Perizot we had a lot of uh tailwind actually so even really and quick with uh not so yeah. many watts i know and i just said it on the podcast just before this i was like you know because people say oh my god pagacha beat vinikurov record on Perisur, um from 2003 or whatever but i was like the stage was pretty easy up to that point in the first the first half of the stage like his normalized power for stage nine was higher than stage eight uh still it's like it's to a france stage it's not easy but it's not it wasn't full gas like from the start he probably had tailwind on the climb and vinikurov did that in like second or third week so all those things and you know yeah the tailwind takes it from what 6.8 down to 6.5 still great but yeah um, but i also think that the the power data from pogacar i <laughs> i'm not really sure if they are correct because they are so crazy insane and uh we actually catch them today in the in the easy ride and i was right i was asking one of the guys from UAE like how's your power meter or what kind of power meter is it is it only like um measuring on left side or is it measuring both sides and he actually said it's only on the left side it's even a carbon crank so i think you can put some watts down i cannot believe that he's doing like i don't know 430 watts over 20 minutes or something like this it's just absolutely mind-blowing with his weight and um i guess it's a little bit less I, if it's really that high it's then i really have to train hardcore 
<laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> fucked. No, his mate, his power data and power meter, like they've had issues all year. Like, obviously, you know, I got nothing better to do with my time. So every time yeah. there's a like climbing performance, I go look at their Strava, um, particularly mostly like Coos and Pagacha. They've always put it up. And like his power meter or the head unit, there's been issues all year. Like he has really bad dropouts. Um, so I don't know what product it is, but yeah, what you're saying is like definitely in line with the issues they've had before. That being said, the VAM he did on Petersburg was still pretty high. So, um, I don't know. We'll never know really his true Watts, I guess, but yeah, you said there was tailwind. So maybe we do have to like knock that down a little bit. Um, yeah, but for sure it was a super great performance. This is nothing I want to, uh, yeah, put down yeah. now. So it was insane, insanely good, but maybe not as crazy as the uh, what data is showing. Yeah. And that got me to thinking, do you think out of lockdown, given that we're seeing people on pretty good form, like people doing good, seem to be doing good numbers, does racing really matter in the lead up for pure GC riders? Like, or can they pretty much train on their own and get to the required level to compete in the Tour de France. Obviously, maybe a week of racing or a little bit of racing just for the handling mm -hmm. and everything is is useful. But like a lot of people were saying that, oh, the riders are going to come in like out of shape. Like the NBA players after the lockdown in the 90s came in like 15 kilos overweight. But to me, it looks like all the riders have been able to actually train for months uninterrupted, get a good program in, and they're at the same level. Is that your experience or what's your perspective on that yeah absolutely i i think that uh, everything changed in the last 10 or 20 years maybe 10 or 15 years ago also the cyclists would have been in bad shape without the racing because they didn't have like the same training focused like we have now i think it's one of the biggest difference maybe between now and 2000 and um in my opinion, we could also see it now after the Dauphiné or in the Dauphiné with Lombardi. Yeah, like all the guys who, who raced and crashed actually got interrupted in their build-up. And uh, this is actually what happens always when you start racing in February, March, April. You start crashing, you get sick. Uh, you have to go on reserve to some race where you don't want to be. And uh, then always your preparation gets disrupted, like you were saying it. And now everybody had time. Like some guys went like two or three times to attitude camp, could totally easily focus on losing weight, getting into proper shape. Because normally you also go to a race and then you're eating like full gas and you maybe gain a kilo again, which you normally in training you don't do. So you're maybe uh, it's harder to actually really drop the weight when you're racing a lot compared to when you only train, because then you all have everything in mind. You can check everything yourself. So I think that the lockdown made it this hard because everybody is training like crazy. Yeah, I think so too. Just looking at the level seems to be just as good, if not better than in previous years. Maybe more crashes, but crashes, I guess, can happen anytime. And yeah. often it's not been the rider's fault that crashes have happened. Like it was no one's fault that loads of crashes happened in stage, or none of the rider's fault that crashes happened in stage one. That was just shit weather and... 
you know, shit the sense. I never went on such slippy roads because it wasn't raining for months there. And then uh, it was like, it was really like soap. Uh, you were just slipping around all day. And how did that affect, I saw you still have your bandage on your leg. Do you just have like abrasions on your, your knee or something like some rash on your knee? Mm. Um, or are you like recovered? It doesn't really matter. Mm, in the first days, it really pulled me back from performing on uh, peak level. I was really far away from what I did like two weeks ago in Dauphiné. It seems like when you are crashing, you, you, you lose some of your last percentage. Like you could also see it in the heart rate. It's not going up that hard anymore. Like it, uh, yeah, it did. And um, your body is like closing down. I, I don't know to to explain it, but I couldn't produce. Like I had like 360, 360 over 20 minutes and I started to get dropped and uh, I couldn't push more. And normally it's not a problem to do like around 390 or something. This is possible. And it was like missing out like 30, 40 watts on the threshold. Yeah. And that's what I thought with, you know, with Borkman is like, it's, I think it's great that he's at the tour and hopefully he can like keep getting better into the third week. But that crash he had, there's a price to be paid for crashing, as you said, you know, even if he's still there, the, re- the energy it takes to recover, especially he had quite a bad crash too. The energy yeah. it takes is going to take, something out of you what do you think is going to happen in this second week do you think the intensity will increase a bit a lot of guys have now lost a lot of time on gc and i think we saw that yesterday like three quarters of the peloton tried to get in the breakaway for 60 kilometers um what what do you how do you see the race panning out in the next week before the next rest day I think we could also see it last year. It was almost the same. Like when it's when the GC riders were yeah, not in shape or had bad luck trying to get into the breaks, it's really get hard. And um, I think this will also happen next week. Always when we have like a mountaintop finish or a hard stage, everybody will go nuts to be in the break. Who do you think is the strongest team right now? It looks to be, I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious answer, Jumbo Visma. They... You tried to get in the break yesterday and they had people pulling hard the whole time. Are Jumbo Visma the strongest all-around team? Yeah, sure they are. Uh, I don't think that uh, any team can match up with them. I think they did a pretty bad mistake with taking Tom Dumoulin out of the GC already. I think that was really not smart from them two days ago. And I also don't understand it. If I see him just pulling there and then getting a minute or something, ah. I, no, I don't. I don't agree. I don't agree. Because right. like, how can he? How can he be competitive on GC if he's getting dropped off Wild Van Aert's wheel on the first HC climb of the Tour on Porte de Ballet? Like Wild Van Aert was dropping him off the wheel, and it was just because they were at the end of the climb that he didn't get split from that group. He went from third wheel back to the end, and then luckily the crest came. Like, I mean, but again, I'm biased. Before the Tour, I was like, no chance. He's competitive on GC coming back yeah. from 400 days i don't know i think he's not not much weaker than he was when he won the giro or when he went second okay. in the tour. i think he's maybe almost on the same level but for sure the concurrence is maybe a bit uh, higher and also i don't know if it's mentally or something if he doesn't like it with the second leader but 
I, I really, before the tour, I was really thinking that he can do like for sure podium because he, he looked strong in the Dauphiné there. He did like a lot of work also for, for Roglic and um, yep. was still, still there. Now he didn't look so good, to be honest, in the tour. But uh, I was also thinking maybe the second week he feels better or the third. And uh, for me, it still, it was absolutely not necessary to uh, lose the minutes with him. Like, uh, also when he didn't look the best, it was still not the, they didn't chase somebody back. They didn't uh, make Primoz Roglic gaining such a huge gap that it was really a, an advantage. So they didn't want every, anything with uh, dropping out Dumino out of the GC. So they didn't gain something from it. It was just, they did it and it happened, but there was no outcome in my opinion. 100% agree with what you just said there. I, what I disagreed was I didn't really see Dumoulin as like a genuine contender complete, compared to like Bernal, Pogaccia and Roglic. But yeah, totally. to your point yeah. about why was he pulling so hard on that climb and then Roglic didn't attack. The opposite, right, is Ineos on Montaguel. Apparently Bernal not feeling that good. So they just went on the front 5.3 watts per kilo and no one really attacked, but they weren't putting their own riders under pressure. Whereas, yeah, to your point, Dumoulin goes on the front, drives it really hard, then leaves Roglic on his own with four kilometers left and Bernal and Pogaccio are like looking at him and it didn't really make sense. What was obvious is that uh, Pogaccio was pissed about this uh, yeah, crosswind failure of losing one minute 20 or something and he wanted to yeah, get it back. So probably he would have attacked. I guess so, because uh, he's also like an aggressive rider. He wants to win and uh, yeah, attack. You could also see it in the crosswinds, which was actually super interesting. Like uh, I was in the second group then, and yeah, it was Pogaccia and UAE, Fulgas riding, also Pogaccia himself. And uh, for example, I think uh, Landa or Mollema or Richie Port, they were all just yeah. in the group not doing anything and <laughs> just let them yeah domestique do the work and i was also thinking like why are you not pulling like it's not it's not killing you now for the rest of the tour de france if you do some turns here and you maybe get some seconds back and it's never easy to gain one minute 20 back in the gc and if you can hold it maybe on 50 seconds or even close it down to 45 seconds then it's a uh, yeah, in my opinion, more easy than gaining it back on the climbs. On the front of the group, Alaphilippe was pulling, Pino was pulling, Roglic even pulled some turns. So the first group, or the GC guys were like, hold on, we've dropped Pogaccia. And they they were hitting it. Yeah, they also sent their domestiques there. But yeah, they were like, every second matters in a Tour de France like this. We've got a stage 20 individual time trial. If someone loses, you know, people are going to lose positions on GC by maybe small amounts. And tomorrow, speaking of crosswinds, everyone's been talking about all oh, stage 10 is going to be crosswinds. I haven't looked at the wind forecast. Uh, that's what I got to do before I go to sleep. Uh, just look at the wind forecast for 30 minutes and try and work things out. But um, what, when there's a crosswind stage like that, what is the DS saying to you before the stage? Are they just saying pay attention or keep him there? Or is there something more sophisticated that they might say mm. 
Yeah, sometimes you have some some really important points in the race where you have to be in front, where it's like so obvious it's going to be a crosswind that you that they're saying out there, there, and there. You have to be 100% in front with as much guys as possible. But at the Tour de France, it's so hard to get with the whole team on a crosswind stage to the front. It's like almost impossible because you cannot stay on, on third or fourth wheel. It's like everybody is bumping into you. You have actually no chance of even holding the wheel of your guy in front of you. So you're basically just trying to be in the front all day and trying to do it somehow with the group or with your teammates. But in the end, uh, it's just yeah, a bit of luck and also a bit of uh, who has the biggest engine to just take a side and go full gas. That's why I think people are like, oh, Ineos not looking that good this year. And it's like, I think people are underestimating how hard it is to get the whole team with 40Ks to go in stage seven and line it out and then drop the other riders with a team that they didn't even have Luke Rowe there. You don't just decide to do that and, oh, then you make it happen. It's like actually a really hard thing to do. Um, yeah. And keeping, like Bernal, I think is actually underrated in crosswinds. Like Bernal and Quintana, I know it sounds like a joke, but since 2015... they're always there. Yeah. Same with Pigita. He's always there because they're good in positioning. And then uh, with some good teammates, you, you're always in the front. It's not about uh, not only about the data. It's also about where do you get into the crosswind. If you're on position 60, you can have as much power as you want. You won't make it back. But on position 20, it's actually pretty easy and uh, not a big stress. And I think what uh, Sky uh, Ineos did on that uh, stage in the end was like masterclass to be there with uh, three or four guys. I don't have it in eye perfectly, but it was really not easy to be there with your team all together being the first into that uh, corner. I did a video on it. I was like, yeah, I called it Ineos crosswind perfection because it was, yeah, it was really impressive. Which stages, or maybe you don't want to give it away, but which stages do you think there might be a breakaway that you could be interested in for in the next week or even the next two weeks? To be honest, I, I don't have it in mind. Uh, I checked all the stages, but I don't mark the, them like in red because before the tour, we had like the plan that I'm going to be the domestique for Emil Buchmann. So I didn't mark some stages where I really wanted to go for myself. But I think we are just looking now from day to day. And when there's a mountain stage, I actually will try to be in the break. and. Uh, Every chance we have now, I will actually try to be there. Well, I'm sure the comments on the video will have lots of informed opinions on which which breakaway you should go in. People always have an opinion on, on that. Excuse um, me. I, I, will, <laughs> I will definitely look it up. Eh? Maybe some good, some good plans and tactics for me. They'll, they'll tell you exactly the what's <laughs> yeah. to do and the what. Ex- just do you know, for six each and a half words. Yeah, for 20, it's just like that. What do you see for yourself in the next like three to four years? Do you have ambitions to become GC leader for one-week races or maybe some smaller stage races or do you want to be a Grand Tour leader in the future? It's really hard to tell. Like uh, before this season, I was like, okay, I would like to try Tour de Suisse to go for a GC there because it's normally a race which shoots me long climbs and... Uh, not super hot so I was like this is maybe perfect for me also yeah I think uh, this year also showed me that I'm, I'm actually good on climbs especially as hard as it gets it's, yeah good for me if I'm in the top shape if I'm not in top shape it's actually not good for me but it's uh, for everybody the same 
And uh, for next year, I, I want to yeah even step up from my actual level, train a bit better in winter and uh, some other periods. So I still think I have some uh, potential left and uh, maybe also gone to at least in my career. I want for sure want to try it one time to uh, cost, contest for a GC. I'm not talking about top three or top five, but at least to try it and see if I can make it into the top 10. Because this is already absolutely not easy. This is a big task. If you if you make it into the top 10 in the Grand Tour, you're really a good rider. And some guys are actually, yeah, often think, yeah, okay, if you contest for GC, you have at least go to top three or top five. But this is such an insane level and it's so hard to do that. So if I can ever make it, I would be super proud of it. Yeah, and just not even having the insane level for one day to not make a big mistake for 21 days as well yeah. and lose five minutes is the other skill as well that, you know, the sky, Absolutely. except when they're crashing, but otherwise like sky don't lose time in crosswind stages or Ineos, you know, it's, it's things like that as well, which make it so hard to yeah contest a podium for GC. But now the important question, what is your top three power rankings for German rappers right now? And where does Jesus sit in those rankings i know i have my own rankings but yeah i need i need yours first oh it's hard to tell to be honest because i'm mostly listening to sseo if i'm <laughs> doing german rap it's like my absolute favorite from them that's for sure and the second one would be uh, zido and uh i think the third one is maybe not from germany it's apache i don't know if you know him but uh, that would be the third rapper yeah, so for context, when Leonard won his Dauphiné stage win, I think you'd seen maybe my Ulrich montage, or not, maybe you'd seen the Bora, the Sibiu uh, Tour montage, yeah, which I matched with Jesus. Awesome. And yeah, it like doesn't make sense, but that's why it's funny. And yeah, Leonard was like, no Jesus, SSEO uh, for my montage, please. And yeah, if you win World Tour stage, you get to pick the music for your own montage. That's how it works, like I, I have some good uh, su suggestions for the next uh, victories if I can get some. <laughs> okay, yeah. If you if you win Tour de France stage win, for sure, <laughs> you can pick the mo the music for your montage. Anyway, thanks, Leonard, for joining us for this rest day recap from your hotel room. I'm in okay, Canberra. Perfect. It's been pretty pretty chill. I've enjoyed it. Maybe we'll have you back on when you if you win a stage, or you know maybe later maybe. in the season if you do Vuelta. But uh, otherwise, thanks for joining. Any last comments for the Lantern Rouge fans or Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast fans? Nah, no comment. Just enjoy it. And uh, SSEO is the best. Thanks to Leonard Kemner for that excellent interview. I hope you liked it. Go and check him out on Instagram if you did. Welcome back, Benji, both from working and following up on Terreno Adriatico and the trade news or transfer news uh, while I was doing that interview. We multitask here on the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Benji, that Torino Adriatico stage finish, we're not going to do a few a full uh, Torino preview, but everyone, you've got to watch the last kilometre overhead shot. How shook were you when Pascal Ackerman went past Gaviria? And do you want to let people, give people a play-by-play -play maybe of the last two and a half, three kilometres? With about two kilometres to go, we saw that Evadication Fast was moving up for Magnus Court Nilsson. After that, we saw quite a few teams mingle around at the front of the peloton and that actually caused a crash. We had a pretty small crash in the sense that not many riders hit the deck. We saw that Medellier hit the deck, I think Dainese, Kevin Rivera and so forth. 
And last but not least, Vincenzo Nibali falling as well. Who do you think is the perpetrator per se in this crash? Or do you think that it wasn't necessarily caused by someone making a bad move? So I haven't really seen the proper overhead shot of what happened with the crash. But what I did notice was, and I kind of endorsed the strategy, is that the overhead shots showing Gaviri with 2.8 Ks to go, he's literally freewheeling because he's mid-pack. Now, there's obviously a massive downside to just being mid-pack sitting in the wheels uh, with 2.8 kilometers to go in that you're going to be a pretty, it's going to be a big effort for you to get into good position, except he had a pretty good train and they brought him up really late on the right-hand side, but then moved sort of slowly diagonally his lead-out man who then pointed to a gap. Uh, and it did seem to be a little space for Gaviria and the last lead-out man to slot into. So that plan seemed to work really well. And then it cut away to a different shot quickly, and then there was a massive pile-up in that sort of area. Now, I'm not saying UAE caused the crash at all, but I'm just saying those two events were contemporaneous, and it, it was a, you know it was a really aggressive, but not nasty, but a good move, but a forceful move nonetheless from UAE to just move up late and then move across uh, almost into the middle of maybe a, the quick step riders. So Benji Gaviria. Do you know when he actually initially kicked for the sprint? And do you have any explanation for why he went so early instead of getting onto the wheel of Magnus Court? I think he went with about 250 to 300 meters to go, which is quite early, quite insanely early, actually. And it all had a reason, to be honest. With about a kilometer to go, we had a late attack by Adrien Petit. And he basically forced Gaviria to use his last leadout man, who was in first position while Gaviria was in fifth position. He had three sprinters ahead of him between his leadout and himself. And at that point, we saw that the lead out of Gaviria basically had to close the gap to Petit himself with about 800 meters to go. So he was not there anymore the moment the sprint had to happen. So in the end, we saw that when that lead out man was gone and Petit was caught again, that tempo stopped a tiny bit, not necessarily stopped, but it slowed down a bit. And at that point, a bit later, Gaviria started to launch because, yeah, there was pretty much no one willing to take control again and he had to launch early. I don't know, maybe he just thought Magnus Court wasn't wasn't up to it at all. Maybe he was only worried about Pascal Ackerman and he saw that Ackerman was about 12 wheels behind him or not even in shot. Rudiger Selig, when you look at the helicopter shot, is looking around and thinking, like, where is Ackerman? And this was, I just spoke to, you know, as you know, Kemner and he hadn't seen it, but I described it to him as this reminded me of the Caleb Ewan sprint in stage three, quite similar actually. Ackerman just moving up through the wheels. But this this was more insane to me than the Ewan sprint. And I also want to commend Fernando Gaviria, actually. I want to commend him on not shutting the door. And I think Gaviria would have been within his rights and definitely wouldn't have been penalized, I don't think, or shouldn't have been, if he'd stayed flush with that right-hand barrier. Because he was kind of on that line, and I think he moved a bit left into the middle of the field not not a big deviation at all Gaviria sprinted fine um but I don't think he knew Ackerman was there on his right hand side and if he did he would have probably held his line on that barrier but Benji like that gap is one of the tightest gaps I've seen a sprinter go through recently and given how big Pascal Ackerman is is as well like what does that say about the mentality of these guys and yeah, like what was your opinion on, on Ackerman going through that gap? 
is it something to be yeah excited about or like yeah I do commend it a bit because I genuinely like to see it. But on the other end, it's also we're also complaining about deviations and such. But this is also kind of dangerous, honestly. It's like such a small gap and they're basically risking their lives. But I guess that's the art of sprinting that you have to be kind of insane to be a top sprinter. And Akamon surely was that today because I know for sure that 80% of the sprinters would not take that gap. But it's also been a while since he've, he's won a a high-scale race. I think his last victory was a Sibiu tool, so maybe just wanted it a bit more than other sprinters because he needed it mentally. And yeah, it's insane to take those gaps, and I wouldn't do it, but then again, I'm not a top sprinter, and maybe that's why. Yeah, and I think there's been a lot of... There's been some people who... They got they got roasted when they were saying... Like, there was the initial take when Jakobsen... That was that terrible crash, and there were like some hot takes from people which were just so out there where they were like, well, this is just part of sprinting, you know. Um, this is the risks these guys accept and no one's really to blame because this is just what happens with sprinting and they're all, they're all you know, nutcases. And that wasn't correct in the Jakobsen example because, well, you know, grown a bag and shut the door, etc. That's against the rules. We don't need to rehash that. But it also is kind of correct that sprinters are nuts like Jakobsen the, the gap there when you freeze frame it there was a moment where some people would have backed off same with Ackerman today there's a moment there where I'm like holy shit when he committed to going through that gap it was even smaller than the gap he did go through but hey is an exciting finish um congrats to Ackerman for sort of breaking a bit of a drought that you alluded to Benji Toronto Adriatico kicked off. We knew it was going to be a sprint, so I pretty much just watched the last 10 kilometers. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I watched the whole 150 or whatever. Nonetheless, we had a crash also of Vincenzo and Ivoli, who hit the deck just riding into Metalier pretty much, who was sitting on the ground at about 5k an hour. He rode into him and literally just fell over him in slow motion, but it looked like he was okay. Let's hope he's okay. Let's hope he can fight in the mountains in the upcoming stages because I think there's one queen stage on stage five, and I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing Los Gualo there. Yeah, and he just, well, the Giro d'Italia just released that promotional video today, which they probably spent a million euro on, with Vincenzo Nibli as the star in it. So, yeah, shame to see him go down. I hope he's okay. A real shame for Kevin Rivera, because he spent so long trying to get back to Europe to race, and it was really difficult for him compared to other riders, and he finally made it there. Um, you know, with the pleas of the help of a lot of other riders. Actually, a lot of other South American riders were put pressure on that to actually happen. So a shame that, that he's gone down and, and missed out. Tim Maria was actually being led out by Mathieu van der Poel. And Maria, we saw him, he won a sprint before. He He's actually flying on the sprints at the moment. So it does sound surprising, Mathieu van der Poel leading out another rider. But Maybe Molière is just, just quicker than him at the moment. But that's enough on Terreno Adriatico Stage 1. We'll be doing a Stage 2 recap tomorrow, obviously, plus the Tour de France Stage 10 recap, a double for you. But Benji, you're the master of transfer news and some of the some of the lesser-known riders. What's the latest transfer news uh, that's hit the press? Basically, the first name that is transferring is one of the young riders from the U23 Giro d'Italia. His name is Filippo Concha, and he was fifth there at the Giro U23, and that's basically seven minutes behind 
the oh-so-dominant Thomas Pitcock. Like, you watched that race more than I did. How dominant was Pitcock there? Extremely impressive, you know. You see who's won the Baby Giro in the past. I think Vlasov won uh, recently as well. Just dominated the race, really. And what really impressed me about Pitcock, and I'm going to do a video on it as well, sorry, I've been saying that for a while, is he actually rides pretty smart. He doesn't just go on the front and say, hey, my watts per kilo are just so obscenely higher than all the other juniors or under 23s. He was like actually forcing guys through, going to the back of the group. And you love to see that sort of stuff, even though he probably would have won anyway, but he was making sure of it. And yeah, I can't wait to see him in World Tour. He's obviously got excellent 20-minute watts per kilo, but cyclocross background as well. He has awesome punch you'd expect. You know, Giro, Giro d'Italia, sort of with a time trial. Oh, and then blah, blah, blah. The sort of the sort of race that I expect him to do well at in a Grand Tour would actually be this sort of Giro route because he can time trial really well. Look at his European Championships time trial and the time he did, and I don't think he's been training that much on a time trial bike either. And he also has really good punch. So Liège, best on Liège, Flesh Wallonia. Yeah, the sky's the limit for that guy. It pains me to say it. Obviously, I you know, um, 10 years of Great Britain dominating world tour or oh, grand tours not world tour dominating the tour de france rather and um you know as a proud australian it does pay me to say it but he looks like he's going to be a superstar for at least the next five to ten years yeah and in regards to that we had the fifth rider there Filippo concha that's the person we were initially talking about he's still signing for lotto sudel so that's some young talent for the team additionally four more transfers i think we have tarame after quite a few years of basically being not that special, just riding anonymously in the peloton. He's going to Circus Monte Gobert. He won quite a few Grand Tour stages in the past. The last one I remember was in the Giro of 2016, I think, stage 20, just ahead of Vincenzo Nibali, who had just dropped Chavez on the final climb. Yeah, it's potentially a good signing. I'm not sure what to think of it. It might still have potential, but he's 33. He hasn't really done too much in the last couple of years, but He's a barrider and he likes to show some action in the breakaway. So let's hope he can do that at Circus. One of the next transfers is at Bora Hansgrohe. Two actually, two on a day. We've got an unexpected one to me. That's that Wilco Kelderman from Sunweb is going to Bora Hansgrohe after, well, he's been quite unlucky in Grand Tours, hasn't he? Plenty of injuries and such. And now he's going to Bora. So maybe that's to help out the Grand Tour team. He's not the only one that's going to sign for Bora. We have Ben Zwiehoff, which is not actually known to me. He's a mountain biker. And yeah, that's a bit of an odd signing for me, but I'm down to see what happens. Yeah, and I did actually have one World Tour rider, uh, not from Bora Hansgrohe, and this was before that signing was announced, saying that a lot of the teams are signing like 100% almost on Power Data now. They don't, they're not even like looking at, okay how can they ride in a crosswind or something so yeah it's interesting to see these younger riders signed who maybe don't have the road results as well um maybe it's people seeing okay well peacock's really good at cyclocross there's all these cyclocross riders that are really good there's so many mountain but we have a history in cycling of mountain bike riders transferring across full saying rasmussen cadell evans the list goes on if the power data's there and if they can handle a mountain bike then they can learn how to race on the road, even if they haven't been you know, racing on the road constantly. I'm sure this guy probably, you know, 
does plenty of road races as well locally that don't show up on uh, pro cycling stats or whatever. But yeah, it's just interesting to see teams signing a lot of these riders. The next one, Benji, Matteo Trentin to UAE. What do you think of that? I'm kind of surprised by that, actually. I actually don't mind. I um I knew it that it was very much rumored to be. It's basically just confirming once more that every CCC rider is riding for contracts right now and hoping that they can basically find a team for next year because while CCC hasn't officially folded, it's more and more looking like it as every single rider is basically leaving. I disagree with you. I do mind it because Trentin has a salary and he's not he's not some mediocre rider. I presume he has a pretty, I mean, I don't know, maybe he has a heavy incentive and low base, but I'd assume he has a decent salary. And I just want to see UAE stacking their team with riders to support Pogacar's GC ambitions. Now, maybe Trentin can actually do a pretty good job of that and be useful, like on a crosswind stage or something, or I don't know, or just to be a road captain. I haven't really seen that from him yet, and I don't remember him doing that too much at Mitchelton Scott either. So, yeah, I think it's a shame that they're not focusing entirely on supporting Tade Pogacar. Um, now, maybe those things aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe there's no salary cap in cycling, uh, and maybe they've got a, a list of people they want to sign to do that. But, yeah, that's that's the only reason why I'm against it, because I like I like Trentin as a rider. I think he's really strong, and I think he's looked pretty good in this year's Tour de France. Kelderman, I think, is not that good, uh, and that's all I'll say on that. But is there any other transfer news, Benji? There's not a rumor that Bora is signing a rider that does not have road race history or experience yet. And that's Jason Osborne, a uh, pretty known rower. And basically, they, well, it's rumored that he has power data that is nearing Grand Tour favorites, which is a big call out to have. I have not checked that fact. So this could be total bullshit, but that's what I heard. And if that's true, then that's pretty cool to follow. Yeah, so... On my on my big to-do list is to get in touch with Jason Osborne. I followed him. I think we followed each other on Instagram the other day because people have been telling me to get in touch with him because, and these are people in, in Germany and Central Europe and they're, they're saying this guy is actually legit. It, it's all legit. The, the rumors, not not the transfer rumor, but the power stuff is legit. Um, and, you know, look at what he did in German national championships, individual time trial. And I don't think he has the most optimized position either. So, yeah, it's on, on my to-do list to get in touch with him and we'll get try and get him on the podcast as well, maybe after the Tour de France, because, yeah, I want to hear what it's like transitioning from being a lightweight rower to apparently doing Tour de France Grand Tour contender or Tour de France GC contender uh, power numbers. You can go and see him on Strava. I think he's got a lot of followers on Strava. And, yeah, I, th- I think his numbers are legit and it just remains to be seen whether he can transfer them back to like transfer them to actually road racing because you know Leonard Kamner said to me today it's not it's not just about the numbers if you are in bad position all the time if you're 60th wheel in the back of an echelon in crosswind then you're probably going to get dropped even if you're Fabian Cancellara or maybe not Fabian Cancellara but you know what I mean so yeah, that's basically it for today, guys. We had our Tour de France recap. We've got a 10th stage tomorrow. Let's finish off with that because we basically haven't done that yet. It is the flat stage from Ile d'Oléron 
to Ile de Ré. It is the one with the echelons, potentially. So I'm looking forward to it. Hoping to see echelons. What do you think? Of course I'm hoping to see echelons. <laughs> what, do, what do you think this is? Of course I am. Great, if there great, isn't, great. Be, if there isn't, I'll be so disappointed. I think that's how we'll end it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to rate us on your relevant podcast player or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for Benji for doing all the groundwork with the transfers. That stuff's really, really good insight. I'm sure you'll all appreciate that. So hit it. let him know on Twitter with hashtag LRCP what you think of those transfers as well. Any last thoughts from you, Benji? Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 